You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And we have, Neil, we have the most unusual, unusual episode that we've ever brought our listeners this week, I think. I think, I think we've done some pretty unusual episodes, but I think this one is unique. This one, well, it's certainly the first time we've done something like this. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we are leaning into the idea of social distancing. We are using social distancing to just really get at the fact that when we usually tape, Neil, you and I are not in the same place at any time. Um, Don't give that away. Oh, damn, we gave that oh, away. Oh no, I think what oh no. happened was we realized that people, there's a mystery. How do they record together right. when they well, live on different sides of the Atlantic? It's the secret um, tunnel. Underneath it's the secret the tunnel. No, well, and that, but now everyone's working it out because they're all having to do what we do, which is to do video conferencing. We took that disadvantage and turned it into an advantage. Yes. So for the first time ever, we did a live broadcast of the taping of our episode. And we had an amazing conversation with Elaine Nsoisi, who is of Boston University, who uh, studies public health and does modeling of the questions in that space. Um, And she was good enough to come back and talk to us on the show. We were also able to take some listener questions um, and answer those questions live and in the moment. And Neil, I really loved this approach. I think it was really exciting. Exciting. I really loved the the energy that it allowed us to bring to that conversation, and so I think I think we're going to do more of these in the future. What do you think, Neil? I I liked it too. I will do more of these in the future. Certainly, across the time when people are also social distancing, it gives another event for them to partake in. I won't use a stronger word as enjoy. But <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the hard things. You you don't quite understand how the audience is, and and I think that this is something we need to get on top of. A lot of people doing a sort of video conferencing workshop. One of the difficulties is as a speaker, you don't really quite know what the audience is doing. We were getting lots of questions, which was helping uh, us understand that there was interest. But uh, it's kind of, it's it's hard. It's not the same as being in the same room, is it? Yeah. How do you close that communications loop when you can't see somebody else's face? Are they smiling at you or are they weeping, but it's all silence, you know? You can't see someone else's face. They were all weeping. Well, you know, Neil, we have that effect on people. (laughs) They were all weeping. Weeping with joy. That's exactly what you want. (laughs) Weeping with joy. Well, without much further ado, let's bring you our first live studio episode of Talking Machines. And if you would like to join our quote unquote studio audience for one of these tapings, watch our Twitter feed, T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S, or visit us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. And of course, always, we are happy to receive your listener questions at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. When we got a chance to sit down with Elaine during our live taping, she's already been on our show. She's the second person who's been on our show twice. We asked her not the same question that we ask everybody every time. We asked her what she's concerned about right now. (laughs) I'm thinking about a lot of things. So on top of all the coronavirus stuff going on, we still have regular classes, still have to read grants. Actually, I have three grants I have to read tonight and review them for the CDC. So that's what I'm actually thinking about right now. Is that CDC, is that a special call for COVID-19, Elaine, or is that a regular call? It's a regular call, but they're thinking maybe in the future they will have supplements for uh, COVID-19 added to you, to this regular call. So to clarify, CDC, that's the U.S. Center for Disease Control. Have I got that right? Yep, U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And uh, so how are you coping? You're, you're locked down in Boston, are you, um, at the moment? Yes. Um, we're not calling it a lockdown, but that's basically what it is. So we... 
we only leave the house for essential activities, so exercising, grocery shopping, hospital. Yeah, that's a similar situation for the UK. So at some point, we should ask you for your tips on what to do with lockdown. But I I think the reason we were particularly keen to have you on for this episode is you have this fantastic experience of being a professor in public health, but also a lot of experience uh, from the African context. Um, And what I wanted to ask you about first is, I think we've seen a lot about what's going on with uh, COVID-19, say, in Europe, in the United States. But I've seen you tweeting lots of interesting articles around uh, the African context. So what's the situation there right now? So cases are increasing, as is expected. There are more cases in certain countries than in others. And there's some countries that have actually not reported any cases, which is Interesting. Um, so I heard uh, that some countries are purposefully not actually testing. Is that uh, true or is that just a fake news rumor? I'm not 100% sure. So some countries don't have sufficient testing resources. Um, I, I don't think, as far as I know, not all African countries currently have testing resources. I think they were close to get into all countries, but I don't think they're there yet. How um, serious? I mean, so, so you, you have a a long-term interest in global health. One of the questions I'm curious about is how is this epidemic different from the ongoing challenges around disease in the African context? In particular, I was reflecting that the type of thing we're worrying about now, there's in a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, there's constant fear about typhoid and malaria. Um, How does this fit in with that ongoing background? I think it's it's an additional strain to the healthcare system. So countries that already have other epidemics to deal with now have another new one to think about. And it has some similarities and in, in differences, similarities being that it's an infectious disease and can spread pretty easily between people. The difference is that it's completely new. We haven't seen this before, and so the reason any immunity to it, which means the impact it can have can be very significant on the continent. What can people do actually at the moment? Because I know people are very keen to help. I mean, and we've seen, I heard there was a hackathon in Germany uh, with 23,000 software engineers. And I, I have don't even have an idea how you coordinate that. I heard that the follow-up hackathon, they're having to have a hackathon to train people to mentor the people in the hackathon which is kind of a a meta hackathon, which is a pretty crazy thought. And one of the things I'm very curious about, and and, also sort of nervous about, we're we're kind of taking up your time at the moment. Uh, How can people best help without without bringing sort of additional load on those who are already heavily loaded, like yourself, reviewing grants, doing everything else? Yeah, I was emailing a friend in South Africa the other day to ask about what they needed help with and her first comment was um, there are too many cooks in the kitchen everyone wants to do disease modeling so one advice that I would give to people is if you've never written an infectious disease model this is not the time to write it Um, you should let people who've been doing this for a while actually develop those models and implement them but I think there are other ways that people can help um, from helping us collect better data. I think a lot of African ministries of health could use some support in that area. Um, As more cases come in, 
people get overwhelmed and the data quality drops pretty quickly. And so if that's something that people could help with collecting that data and put it in a place that people can use to understand how the epidemic is spreading within countries, but also across the continent as well, that would be useful. Data visualization is also something that people can do. Informing people about what is true and what isn't, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. So if you can help people in your community find true information from whether it's WHO, Africa, CDC, and other sources that are actually pushing true information about the outbreak, I think that would be very, very significant. And I think there are many other things that people can, can do from contact tracing, but those things require training and requires ministries of health to train people to do that stuff and assist them in, in ways that they think they need help the most. So... One of the things you've done is I think you've set up a GitHub repository for um, data collation. I've shared that on the chat link. It's uh, github.com dsfsi slash COVID-19 Africa is the repo. I've got that right. So um, that's one place people can look at. That's an initiative from yourself and uh, uh, Vukosi Marivet, I think. Is that correct? Yes. Another thing um, I understand you've you've done is start creating uh, cartoons so i like these cartoons um who who were you working with for these i've worked with a, a few people this one i did with walter lima and dina assisted us in making that connection and so he's That's dina machuva right? yes yes so he's in tanzania and he did all the the drawings and i provided the text and looked at the images to make sure they made sense is this swahili uh the language here yeah this is swahili one of the things i've been enjoying following you on twitter is you've been sharing the bbc pigeon which i didn't actually even know existed where they've got a lot of information around and i've been reading uh, bbc pigeon stories which are quite interesting as well i can understand the pigeon better than the swahili obviously yeah it's and it's it's very interesting to listen to the way it's spoken and then see the way it's written. So if you're looking for something at home, check out BBC Pigeon or if just follow, even better, just follow Elaine on Twitter and when she shares something from there, uh, you can go and check that out. The other is, I think, for Sierra Leone. Have I got that right? Uh, and we'll share these on the website. Um, for You're looking to uh, get these more widely distributed. Correct. So we currently have these, I think, in maybe seven different languages. So it'd be nice if people want to do some translations in their own languages. It's pretty easy to edit this on Adobe or maybe other software that allows you to edit PDFs. Just a quick question on that. What is the rendition of the language here? Because I almost feel I can slightly read it. The, the top one, it feels like the first thing looks like it's saying, what's your hand? And then I can't read the last word. Our time. Our time. That's our time. It's, yeah, so this is uh, Sierra Leone and Creole, which is very similar to to Pigeon. It, it it's the basically the same thing, but the the way they they speak, they place emphasis on different words in different ways. But I can understand them pretty well. And what's the backward C sound? That's actually an O. I think it's just a typo. So it's all that's old a typo. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Typo. Well, I was I was thinking that was pretty cool that there was a backward C <laughs> in the language, but it turns out that that's uh, all just a, so all of those backward C syllables. So, what's your hand, Altem? Oh, that's often then effectively. Yeah, yeah. So, um, one thing I'm curious about is uh, you, as we heard in the previous episode, you've been involved in data science Africa for 
some time. Is that work managing to come together with your public health work? And, and how can entities like Data Science Africa get involved and, and help? So, yes, it is. Um, so, the for example, the cartoons that we, we developed were with Dina, and I met Dina at Data Science Africa, obviously. And so those relationships have been very useful to connect with people on the continent. Since I can't be there, I was supposed to go to Sierra Leone before uh, Trump closed all the borders, so I didn't, I didn't leave. But having people on the continent who can actually connect me to the right people has been really useful for that. But I also think there's a lot of expertise within the data science Africa community that can be useful during this time, whether it's collecting new data. So we talked a little bit about this with um, you this morning and Shira, how we could look at things like symptoms. Is there a way that we could start collecting symptom data, especially for countries that don't have the testing resources? Because my assumption is that there's probably a lot more transmission in some countries than has been reported. And if we can start looking at symptom data, that could give us a little bit a better idea of the scale of the epidemic. You remind me, I was just actually just received a paper today that's um, written by some colleagues at Cambridge, titled "How Artificial Intelligence Can Machine Learning Can Help Healthcare Systems Respond to COVID-19." And they've divided it into challenges, which are in line with some of the things I was seeing. Uh, so I'll run a few of these past you. So, so challenge one. I mean, and this is obviously more UK focused, but uh, it'd be interesting to see how these map also to the African context. Managing limited healthcare resources. So in terms of testing kits, hospital beds, ICU beds, ventilators, personnel, managing capacity. Does that map well also to the African context? Oh, yeah, it does. I think there are definitely a lot more challenges in terms of healthcare resources in most African countries. Um, when compared to the UK or the US. And so thinking critically about what is going to be needed if this becomes really bad, how many hospital beds are we going to need? Do we need to start? Well, where are we going to get ventilators for countries that have a very few number of, of ventilators? And what are creative ways can we think about managing um, cases as they report it. Challenge two, they have developing personalized patient management and treatment plans, efficiently using available observational data to learn the effects of existing treatments on individuals given their specific features, including existing comorbidities. That seems like a challenge, a big challenge, even in the UK to do on the sort of timescale we're talking about. Do you feel that's something that would map across to Africa? Yeah, it would, um, especially when we talk about chronic diseases that we don't yet know how those interact with um, COVID-19. So HIV, for example, we're not exactly sure how people with HIV are going to be affected. And then there are all the chronic diseases that just haven't been observed in other countries yet that might be be unique to the African context. That's a great point, meaning in terms of the comorbidities, the interactions between those diseases will just be an entirely different set within the African context. I mean, on that, the the age profile of the African population is, is also, is very different than, say, the Italian population where we've seen a very high rate of 
death mortality, yes. It, this seems like a double-edged sword to me. There's a sense in which perhaps one could be complacent about it because it's that, well, actually the effect... I mean, I think, what's the median age for the sub-Saharan continent? It's about 19 years. Which is and how, how does that relate to the Western world, I presume, which is a lot higher, right? Yeah, it's a lot higher. So in the US, until I think the last week, we didn't have any deaths for people 19 years and younger. Um, in the last week, I think they've been a couple reported, but it's still a very small proportion of deaths. So I think, I mean, roughly speaking, the median age for Europe must be like high 30s at least, right? Mm-hmm. I think Italy is around maybe low 40s, high 30s. Okay, so in other words, 50% of the population is sort of 40 and below and 50% is 40 and above versus the African context, 50% is 19 and below, 50% is 19 and above. Um, I'm curious, how is that playing out, particularly, I mean, in South Africa, where you've got, I, I think that the disease is quite present in South Africa at the moment. I think it's the first place where we're seeing increasing numbers. Is that correct? Yeah, in sub-Saharan Africa, definitely. Yeah. Um, do you think that that age profile is is that coming into consideration in terms of are people saying, well, this is less of a problem in the continent, or is it equally? I think there there is concern. I think WHO's message right now is just be aggressive as you can in managing this. And don't assume that because most people are young, they're not going to be affected. And the other thing to think about is in the in the Western countries, especially in the U.S., for example, if young people get sick and they need hospitali- hospitalization, they probably end up getting really good care. And that means your chances of dying are lower. But if you have the same condition in an African country that does not have good health care, then you're more likely to die from the disease. Particularly with those uh, potential that you also have an existing precondition. I always think it's a, I mean, it's slightly annoying when they keep saying underlying health conditions. It's like they explain away the deaths. It's, you know, I I don't know. Perhaps there's no other way of doing it, but it's slightly odd, isn't it? They keep saying so-and-so died. They were 34, but they had underlying health conditions. And, you know, that, uh, okay, so the next one was, um, and this is, I think, very interesting, how one does it in Africa. Challenge three, informing policies and enabling effective collaboration. Certainly, that's something I've been involved in a bit in, in the UK. How do you think that maps to this very different context where there's a lot of different countries, they have a lot of different concerns, um, and perhaps there's no single point of entry to policy. I mean, clearly you, the cartoons is, is one great example. I think the Africa CDC is a good point of entry for this. Um, and they've been managing this pretty well in terms of training healthcare workers across the country, making sure that the different countries are prepared as much as they can be prepared for this, for this pandemic. And different countries are also dealing with this very differently. There are people who are taking it a lot more seriously than others. People were trying to downplay how bad it is for political reasons or other reasons. And so you're right in that there's no single point of entry, but I think people within their countries can think about ways that they could have impact in their own communities, even if the government and 
the government is not interested in collaborating. There are things that we can still do as individuals to protect ourselves and protect the people around us. I think it's interesting when you mention political purposes, because I guess until it's one of the a striking thing about in a lot of African countries, data will often be used for political purposes, but that's not restricted to African countries, is it? We're seeing that hampering efforts internationally in terms of people wanting to represent statistics for other means. I always sort of think that whatever, you know, whatever challenges in you see on the African continent, you, they are also manifested in UK, US, uh, European countries, but perhaps to different extents. And, and actually that brings me to a, another question that there's, there's clearly a trade-off between these strategies we're taking to lock down our economies, um, because that will have a downstream effect. And one of the things that I certainly feel is very worrying is that that downstream effect will affect young people more than older people. And I think that this this balance, this equation becomes much more extreme in the African context, because if you lock down, say, the economy of Tanzania or Uganda, you have more people who are living closer to the edge, right? And economic difficulties don't mean, oh, I've got less money, but there's, you know, the government will bail me out or fund this or there's, or economic difficulties mean something quite a lot more severe in terms of that you, you may starve or you may not be able to support your family quite quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah. So does that, has that, how has that, I mean, I think a real challenge is therefore, and this relates to earlier, you were saying quite rightly, disease modeling is probably not the time to start becoming an epidemic disease modeler today. Although we've all secretly been doing it in the background. I have run an SEIR model and uh, on my own policy for government. Um, but it, it strikes me that it's actually quite important that we have a body of African researchers who understand, I mean, who understand the economic realities, who understand the context of the country, modeling the disease for decision-making from the continent rather than it being imposed outside. So how can we address that challenge that there's less likely to be less of those people, but actually we really want the modeling to come from those countries? Yeah. So first of all, I, I'm actually quite worried about the the way that social distancing is being implemented in some countries without actually thinking about the economic impact on people. And I don't think that the way that is being implemented in the U.S., for example, is going to work perfectly well in most African countries because it's just very different social and economic environment. And I think there has to be a little bit more thought about how how can these be implemented in a way that would have impact, but also make sure that we don't end up with riots and people uh, suffering for because they don't have food to eat. In terms of disease modeling, there's already people with expertise. They might not have run disease models specifically, but they have developed mathematical models for other purposes. So I think AIMS is one good example. So the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, they train people to develop mathematical models and that could those skill sets could be adapted to this to this scenario in collaboration with epidemiologists and public health experts who can inform those models. So those skill sets do exist on the continent. It's a matter of transferring them from where they may they might have been used for other purposes to address specific problem that's that's ongoing. 
Great. I'll, I'll move back quickly to the last two challenges. And I think we should go. There's so many great questions coming through in the chat that I feel that um, we should move to them uh, fairly soon. But just I'll just review uh, the last two challenges. I think cause this one's this one's personally, I find this very interesting because this is actually uh, the, the playing with models is this is what I've been more interested in understanding and accounting for uncertainty. I find this fascinating because it, the, the challenge is because it's novel, the COVID-19 pandemic is being managed with very little prior experience and limited data. I would go further than that. I think we've got a particular problem in that the form of modeling we're using, mechanistic modeling, typically does not make use of data because often that data is not available. So in climate modeling, we're often forecasting into the future and it's we see those models with data, but it's actually quite hard to recalibrate as data evolves. And I, I think a particular challenge is in machine learning, we're more used to data-driven modeling, less mechanism, but it feels like we need to bridge those two areas. And I think that this challenge is very much a part of that bridge from the data we're seeing to feed into the models as rapidly as we can. And I think that that is not such a smooth pipeline, partially because people who've been doing epidemiological modeling in the don't you don't have this type of data often. You, you are having to build the model in order to predict the future. So they've just seen a question, what's mechanistic modeling? I mean, mechanistic modeling would be modeling uh, using an understanding of, say, the physics or the biology of the disease. So a epidemiological model is more of a mechanistic model because it's including notions about uh, infection and how the disease might move through the population and has a set of differential equations to interconnect those things. Um, but it, is that also something that we can see for the African context? It feels like that might be particularly important because of the way the disease might spread could be very different from uh, in the European context. Yeah. And also, we do use a bit of data in mechanistic models because, first of all, the parameters have to be estimated somehow. And most of those are based on previous observations, whether it's your incubation period or infectious period. You're looking at data that has been collected to estimate those properties. And fitting the model, you want to calibrate your model such that it at least captures the trend that you've observed so far for the epidemic before you go off and make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. And I think the, the African context is definitely unique in for many reasons. It's taken some time for us to have confirmed cases reported compared to other parts of the world. Um, we also have the age structure that we should take into account when we develop models. How is this going to be different for this particular age um, demographic? Also thinking about just how people are distributed spatially. So in cities might, some cities might be more similar to what we're seeing in the U.S. So when I think of New York, I tend to think of Lagos in terms of density. There's so many people in one place, and so disease transmission can happen very easily in those spaces. Um, so there are some similarities, but there are also differences that we have to incorporate into our modeling. And you're making me think there that in many African countries, there's a lot of dependence on people working in the capital city from the villages. So presumably, there's a lot of movement between the city and the village, perhaps more than in other areas. Okay, the final challenge, and then we'll move on to the questions, was um, expediting clinical trials. So I guess trying to get things 
treatments to trial quicker. Is that an area you've also looked at and thought about in the African context? I haven't thought about that a lot, actually. Um, I've been mostly focused on what can we do at the moment, assuming that it's going to take a while for us to to get to vaccines. I think that the notion is that randomized control trials are the sort of gold standard in uh, validating uh, the efficacy of a treatment, but is the data that we can use from a machine learning context to get drugs, potential drugs, to the randomized control trial earlier? So can we make use of machine learning AI techniques for trying to understand uh, what things we should be taking to trial? Because trial is obviously uh, can be time consuming and expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, chloroquine that we've been talking about for as a potential treatment is something that has been studied for a long time. And I think we have a pretty good idea of the side effects, especially from users in, in Africa. So I was talking to my mom the other day and she was telling me, like, if you take chloroquine, you have to take an antihistamine because you're going to get itchy otherwise. There is some knowledge about how useful it could be, but also what the side effects are. And so going into clinical trials with these, I don't think it's completely blind in that in that we do know some things about this this drug. So so you mentioned chloroquine because it's it's been highlighted as a, a potential treatment. I think uh, Donald Trump mentioned it, but I think that there was almost immediately after that there was incidents of chloroquine poisoning, I think in Nigeria because people had responded by taking the drug because it's, I guess it's widely available as a treatment for malaria in, in Nigeria. And, and this is one of the things that's so difficult. You know, you just want to be open about what's going on, but then you get these weird effects, right? Yeah, and it's happened in the US as well. <laughs> There's been chloroquine poisoning. And my sister is a pharmacist and she says it's been so hard to find chloroquine because people are just buying it in, in bulk. And so they're running out really fast. So I, I think... Machine learning could definitely help in in terms of hastening these clinical trials. I haven't looked into that too much, but I know there are people who have been thinking about drugs and how machine learning could help in that process. Brilliant. Oh, thanks so much for your answers to all my questions. And I really feel we should be going to the uh, audience questions. And I think Catherine's been looking through and probably has one ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. We have we have a lot of fantastic questions. Thank you, everyone, for joining in the chat. We have one from Ernest. And so, Ernest, I'd love to throw it over to you to have you ask your question directly. Yeah. So, Elaine, uh, I, was, I was just wondering, I mean, there's been uh, several models coming out, uh, mostly mechanistic. Uh, I was wondering how the field will change after COVID. What do you see as the possible changes in the field of disease modeling just because of this huge pandemic, especially after the pandemic? I, I doubt that the, the field would change too much because I think the, the assumption with models is that what we predict is not going to happen. <laughs> so you, you build a model and you make all those predictions and you're assuming that people are going to change their behaviors or policies going to be implemented that would lead to the model's outcomes not being true. And so even if the models, so in either case, it's kind of like a, the model, the, the modelers will either feel validated if their outcomes do not come true or they will feel validated if their model, if their outcomes come true. Does that make sense? 
So I don't I don't think it's going to change too much. It it's just a new experience and people are going to maybe think more about how we could do better modeling in the absence of good data. But I think that's something people have been thinking about for a while during Ebola and other outbreaks that we've had in the last 10 years. So I don't, I don't really think it's going to change too much. Does the fact that it's a novel disease have any impact on what types of models you would want to use or how you might approach it? Or is it really just that it's just another lack of data where we might see the same kind of problems around like being able to verify information or being able to collect information that the impact of the novelty of the disease is sort of nothing new? Or does that present unique problems? I think the, the novelty of the disease is important but at the same time, it's similar in terms of transmission when you think about influenza-like diseases. And so a lot of the models that are being used now are models that were developed for influenza modeling. And so people are just adapting those models and changing parameters, but it's basically the same models that have been used in the past. For the sake of making sure that the, we don't have the call drop, I think we're going to just uh, read people's questions, if that's all right. So we have a question from Andrew Silva. In an attempt to build models for resource allocation or epidemiology from data-rich places like New York, how can we deploy these to areas where we may have completely different supply chains, population dynamics, etc.? Essentially, how can we handle the covariate shift across geography? What do you guys think? I think that that's super interesting. It's, it's an advantage. Okay, so in theory, the advantage of a mechanistic model is that you expect the mechanisms to transfer. But of course, we've talked a little bit about how things are different in the African context. Um, so yeah, as you, I mean, the points you mentioned, so around different supply chains, different population dynamics, we've talked about the way that people may move in and out of cities in a different way, that can have a very significant effect. And I think that the challenge is that you're going to probably end up needing to, and Elaine will correct me if I get this wrong, re-estimate the parameters of your model from the data. I think one of the things we've seen in Europe, uh, certainly in the UK, my understanding of the change in policy was driven by parameter updates. So seeing what happened to the disease in China and then saying, oh, we actually, we got the parameters wrong, which I find very worrying, actually. And I think that the uncertainty, the challenge for, I think, from Mihaela's challenges of having better uncertainty modeling is, is really something that needs to be done. I hope, you know, if I wear epidemiological modeling, it certainly does look at uncertainty modeling, but I think it was surprising that there was very limited sensitivity analysis being done on the model from Imperial College relative to what you might expect when these parameters are so hard, so hard to pin down. So, I mean, that would be my answer is you would hope that the model would transfer once you get the parameters right, but that's going to be quite a difficult task in itself. But let's turn over to the expert. I, I agree with Neil. I think you either have to build a new model completely that takes into account the, the unique context of, of Africa, or you have to re-estimate your parameters for your current model um, to capture the Africa social and um, economic scene. I think we've got time for a couple more questions. We have one from Joyce. And Elaine, I'd love to, given the, the, the cartoons that you have been putting out, um, I'd love to hear your perspective specifically about how you feel like there's effective ways to communicate good 
information around this and especially good information about how the rates of the disease are changing and sort of what sort of statistical unfolding we see. Our question specifically is from Joyce. There's a lot of misinformation about COVID. How can we overcome this and push out good information to people, especially in areas where you might not have access to social media platforms like that, or you might not be active on social media platforms? Do you have a take? I mean, the cartoons seem like uh, a fantastic and very fundamental place to start. Are there other projects that you've seen in this space that you feel like are doing a good fundamental lift? The cartoons that we we created were Probably a good way to go. So in Sierra Leone, so I worked with David Senga in Sierra Leone on this, and he texted me that they had printed 32,000 copies. So instead of relying on people sharing on WhatsApp, they actually printed it out and handed it to people as a way to educate them about COVID-19. The challenging thing with misinformation is that it's not always the same. It's constantly changing. So I think we need tools or processes that allow us to continuously respond to misinformation as as it's basically created. So I don't know if this should be a country-focused effort. I know the WHO has created a WhatsApp channel where they, they're trying to communicate about COVID-19 to people. But for those who are not on WhatsApp, we have to think about all the ways that we can get this to them. And one of the things we thought about when we created cartoons was to create visualizations such that people can see, even people who cannot read, they can look at those images and see, okay, the kid touching his face has all these weird, angry things about around him. So that must be a bad thing to do. You don't even want weird, you angry things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah even if you can't read what it says. Right. Yeah. So thinking about, so that's so fascinating to think that, that misinformation is not the same as good information, um, or they need to be, one needs to be combated in a different way than the other can be spread effectively. And really thinking closely about the, the methods and the channels, whether or not that's pictures and what languages you're publishing in and how you're distributing and all that, and how that, how much those basic questions can have an impact on whether or not your message gets out or the correct information is reaching people's ears. We've got time for, for one last question. We've got time for one last question. This question comes from Dina. How do you foresee COVID-19 rates growing in Africa in the near future? Oh my, I, I think most countries are going to continue seeing increase in, in cases, even in places where social distancing has been implemented very seriously, we would still need weeks to see the the impact of that. So at the moment, we're going to see new cases being reported. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are getting infected now. These could be infections that have already happened. So there is an incubation period before you start seeing symptoms. So these are people that might have been infected before social distancing started. So it, it would take at least a few weeks for us to see an increase in cases before we can start seeing the effects of social distancing. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. And I also appreciate you having it in front of our uh, uh, live studio audience, digital studio, not live studio audience. Um, and thank you so much to everyone who joined in for all of your fantastic questions. I think we'll be able to do many more of these in the near future. Um, we really appreciate them. And we hope that you'll come back and join us for more. So if you would like to send us a question, you can always get us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNG. 
M-C-H-N-S. And our fantastic interview with Elaine will be part of our next episode coming up. And stay tuned to our Twitter feed for an alert on when we'll be doing our next live taping and our next episodes coming up. Thank you all so much for taking the time to participate. That is it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>